Welcome to the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I'm Jennifer Silliman, and this show is continuing the conversations started in the award-winning first-ever documentary film about maternal mental health. My journey as an advocate began through the power of storytelling. With this podcast, I hope to create a community of women and professionals sharing their own powerful narratives to let others know they're not alone and help is out there. Keep in mind that some of the stories you will hear may be triggering, but it's important they be told. This podcast is not a replacement for professional help from a licensed medical provider. If you or someone you know is suffering due to a maternal mental health condition, please contact your medical provider or call or text message the Postpartum Support International Helpline at 1-800-944-4773. Now let's continue the conversation. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. My guest today works in Richmond, Virginia as a licensed clinical social worker and is also a certified yoga teacher specializing in prenatal yoga and soon will be certified in postpartum yoga. So let's welcome Linda Zafram to the podcast. Hi, how are you? Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Good. I'm so excited to see you. It's been a long time since we've connected. So if it's one thing this podcast has done for me is has been uh, able to reconnect with so many of you in this field that I just admire and love so much. So, um, so I know like all of my guests, I always sound like a broken record in the beginning of these podcasts is that everyone has a personal connection to perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. It's the big reason why a lot of us get into this work. And so I'd love for you to kind of share your personal connection to all of this. You can start your story wherever you'd like. Sure. Sure. I got pregnant with my son at 34. I had a pretty, you know, uh, insignificant pregnancy. I mean, you know, the typical nausea and things like that. And um, toward the end of my pregnancy, you know, I started getting hypertension and pre-help syndrome and preeclampsia. So I was put on bed rest. Um, And then I ended up having my son at 39 weeks in one day. Um, ended up having a C-section. I pushed for two hours. He was sunny side up. He wouldn't come out. So, um, I ended up having a C-section. Um, and that was the first part of like the beginning of the downfall for my, um, birth of my son. Um, so first of all, the doctors don't tell you what's going to happen to you when you have a C-section. So, um, when you're strapped to the table and you don't know, that was pretty alarming to me. And I know that's for a lot of women, especially some of the women I work with who may have trauma, um, being strapped to the table, not knowing that's going to happen to you can be pretty traumatic. Um, and then the smell of your own burning flesh when they're cutting you open, that was very traumatic for me. One of the things I don't think they realized is that the room is pristine and everything's a mirror. So I could see above me, I could see them, you know, throwing the towels and all of that. Um, I was numb from the neck down. So I thought I was going to die on the table. I was like, I can't feel anything. So that was pretty terrifying. And I hear a lot of that in stories of other women. Um, And so we had the C-section. I don't really remember the first picture of myself and my son. Um, And there's a video of me like opening his, his blanket and looking at him. And I don't remember any of that because, you know, they get, have a lot of anesthesia. And if you're, if you're going to throw up during the surgery, they give you more medications. So that happens. So I don't remember a lot of that. Um, and so then, um, we had him in the room. He had an APGAR score of nine, everything was going well. And they took him to the, um, 
to do his well baby check. And then they came back and told us that he was in the NICU. His platelet count was 10,000 and it's supposed to be 150,000. So he was having to get platelet infusions and IVIG. Um, I have NATE, which is a rare platelet disorder. So that's neonatal isoimmune thrombocytopenia. It's a fancy name for NAIT, but basically it's a mismatch between your partner and yourself of platelets. So it's kind of like the RH factor, but it's a lot worse. So the entire time you're pregnant, your body is fighting your babies. So there's a big community of us who have had these children um, and many of them had brain bleeds and my son was one of them. So we had the C-section, we had the news of him being the NICU who's in there for 11 days, um, which was very traumatic for me and not knowing what we had, how it happened. Um, had no family history of, of this happening in our, our family. So only 2% of the population have it, which uh, for us, you know, that was pretty devastating. And then trying to like back up and reel in and, and figure out like what, what exactly happened. So then we had a lot of, you know, uh, doctor's visits uh, for specialists, neurologists, hematologists, um, and being a, a first time mom, that was, that was really difficult. And um, I felt really isolated and really alone. A lot of people didn't get it. You know, I don't know many people whose children have brain bleeds and, and it happened in utero for me. I was, it happened two days before he was born. He was born and I was actually in the hospital at the time. Um, on bed rest there. So that was, that was really difficult. And so when I had my son, I, I experienced postpartum anxiety and depression. Um, I had, you know, some intrusive thoughts. My fear for my son was that he was going to be disabled. And I had a really hard time working through that and trying to figure out what his life was going to be like and worried about if kids are going to make fun of him and worry about the long-term consequences because um, he had a lot of spasticity. So they were um, possibly, you know, screening him for a CP because of the parts of his brain that had been affected. And just the, the lack of support I had, like his eyes were swimming because he had neurological damage and people were like, that's normal. And it really wasn't normal. And um, people just going, well, I had this, you know, horrible vaginal birth and, and you know, sort of the trying, not really one upping, but like the trying to see somebody, but not really being present for their story, which for me was very difficult and, and created a lot of resentment. I needed to process my story and people were sharing theirs. And so um, even in therapy, I try not to share my own when someone is sharing theirs, even though I may see them and uh, understand really where they're coming from. It really is about the person telling the story and them actually being able to share all of it and someone to sit in that uncomfortable space and sometimes maybe say nothing, right? I didn't wanna hear what anybody had to say. I didn't wanna hear their terrible story in that moment you know, in the first six months, I was drowning in, in grief um, and doctor's visits. Um, and so it was really lonely. And then I joined, you know, the Nate community where other parents had been going through the same thing. And then there was this sort of divide in that group of, well, you know, this happened to us, but at least my kid didn't have a brain bleed. So then I felt even, I was like, oh, well, your kid didn't, but my kid did. So somehow, you know, it just created this, all of this sort of aloneness of dealing with uh, really what was traumatic for us. And then we had a lot of, you know, services after. Um, my son is fine. He's a normal, happy 12-year-old. Um, he doesn't have any long-term effects from it. But, um, you know, as a parent, you always worry about, you know, he still has a seizure risk. I don't think as much now, but he did for a long time. And then came six months later, 
the birth of the pregnancy of my daughter, which was unexpected. (laughs) So we were dealing with all of his medical issues and all of that. And so in order to get her here safely, I had to suppress my immune system. So I had to be in the hospital twice a week for 12 hours, um, being infused with IVIG so that my body wouldn't attack her. Um, And then I was on 50 milligrams of steroids a day that gave me uncontrollable gestational diabetes. Um, And so it was a really long haul for both pregnancies. She came out, her platelet count was normal. Everything went well, but it was another C-section um, that I had to go through, but it was planned. It was much better, but still the, the grieving that comes with not being able to have a vaginal birth, not being able to have your V back, not being able to have those experiences, um, I think has a, an impact on, on women. So those are a lot of the things that I, you know, work with in my practice, those who have had two C-sections, uh, grieving the loss of, of not being able to have the birth that they want. Um, and so I worked through all of that. And part of my working through all of that, I became a doula because <laughs> I wanted to know why some people have these amazing, beautiful births and why, um, um, uh, uh, you know, us, some of us didn't. And what I found out through that process, though, was that it's all hard. Every last bit of it is hard. No birth is better than the other. No birth is more beautiful than the other. And most women struggle at some part of the process of conception or they have a pregnancy, you know, a horrible pregnancy, or, you know, they have a really hard birth or they're not able to breastfeed or they suffer with postpartum mood disorder. So I don't really know many people who have escaped any part of having some, you know, um, grief about that process. And I tell people, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, your wedding day and a tsunami coming through it. It's like, you have this really beautiful vision of what you want that to look like. It's a huge rite of passage that people don't always get, especially those without kids. I had a friend tell me after she had her own kids, she's like, if I had any idea what what you were going through, I would have slept on your porch, but she didn't, you know? And so, and it's like, it's, it's the aftermath that people recognize how hard being a first time mom is and how hard um, coming home with a baby who didn't have the perfect, perfect birth and, and those types of things. So that's sort of my journey. So then I just became specialized in perinatal mood disorders, got specialized in uh, perinatal loss. My first pregnancy was actually a miscarriage. So that's kind of the trajectory of why I showed up here in the, in the postpartum world arena is my own experience. But also when I was looking for care, there was only three people at the time. And this was only 12 years ago that actually specialized in perinatal mood disorders. Um, I went to a place after I had my son um, who was offering like fourth trimester, some sort of class. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go to that. I really need it. And when I called, the woman was like, you sound like you need something now. And I was like, I do. So I went, met with this person. They're like, oh, well, I don't know anything about babies with brain bleeds. I don't really know what to tell you. Here's the happiest baby on the block video. And I paid $75 and I cried all the way home. So there was, you know, there was a big gap in services as far as women who had had trauma and then women who had had, uh, you know, postpartum depression and anxiety. So I, I feel like I felt like, oh, wow, I'm a I'm a therapist and I can't find care. I can only imagine how difficult it is for those who don't know where to look. 
So thankfully we have postpartum support Virginia, which is an amazing organization who has spent the last few years growing and training therapists and doulas and those who work with moms and babies and families to um, support moms. So we are very now rich, you know, birth community here in, in Richmond. So that's, that's really beautiful to see in, in the shifts in the hospitals, as far as birth and delivery and, what they're uh, supporting women with, which is, which is nice to see. Yeah. Um, it's so neat to see that's the, the, the beauty of being able to reconnect with everyone is kind of seeing where everybody is now. And, and you and I have kids the same, same age. So my, my alley will be 12. And it's when you look back and you're just like, wow, that was only 12 years ago, how far we really have come. I mean, we have a really, really, really long way to go, but, you know, resources have become, you know, very much available to people and that they weren't before. Um, so that is the plus side anyway of, you know, of, of people going through this experience and then being able to pay it forward, you know, to someone who didn't have, yes. you know, what they wish they had your friend saying, Oh, I would have slept on your porch. Like, that's just so like powerful. Right. I mean, I, yes. Oh my goodness. Like, I think a lot of us feel that way after going, you know, even just becoming a mom in general, despite if you had, you know, an anxiety disorder or whatever it was, people don't realize how hard it is until they're put in that situation. And you're just like, Oh my goodness. Like, yes, yes. It is a lot. Well, it's a major life transition. And, and I, you know, I tell my clients all the time, there's no way to prepare for it. There's no one book you can read. There is no one thing you can listen to. There is no one movie to watch. It's very, it's a very unique experience for every person. And it's based on their own histories, their own experiences, their own mothering, you know, how they were mothered, what, what their expectations of motherhood is. A lot of people had, very, you know, strict moms or very moms who were, you know, hands off, or it's also like even different generationally, like I'm a seventies kid. (laughs) So we were latchkey kids, right? We were to be seen and not heard. We were to be sort of invisible. Mm -hmm. And and that was our, you know, but my mom stayed home until, until um, I went to kindergarten, but that was very much the norm for seventies kids. But like then eighties kids have a whole different experience of parenthood and nineties kids. And now, you know, I think I think as the generations go on, we come, we could become better parents because we have more information. You know, how, how do you, how would you suggest to women? Um, how do you prepare for this? How, I mean, what are the steps that moms, modern moms, I guess, in this world, yes. which is, which is really crazy because of COVID. And like, yes. I mean, I'm sure there are women out there that are like, want to get pregnant that want, but we're in a pandemic. We're, we're isolated. Not as yes. much maybe as we were when it first started, but there's still a lot of fear there with everything. I mean, what do you, what do you suggest to, to young parents or young people that want to become parents? Well, I think one of the biggest things that happen with birth and pregnancy is we spend all of this time preparing for the birth. And then you have the baby and then you have no postpartum plan. And that's one of the things that I really recommend to my clients. And I, you know, I'm a doula. So I, I have a postpartum plan that I, that I give my um, clients who are pregnant. Cause it's like, okay, who, who can you call when you have a bad day? 
who can leave work to come home and help you if you need to sleep? You know, it's identifying a support system. And I think that's been a lot harder during COVID because people have really had to sort of close in because of the fear of them getting it, the fear of the baby getting it, you know, people choosing whether or not to vaccinate and people making decisions about who they want to be in their pods, you know, because of that, which has been very difficult. It's caught a lot of caused a lot of angst with, you know, family members between families. Um, and then also the fear of them giving it to their elders, um, you know, their older uh, generations and not wanting them to get sick. So I would, I tell my moms even now uh, that just make a support system. You know, you don't have to have people come over. You can put a cooler on the porch for people to still leave food. Um, and then, you know, you can reheat it or get it when you want. So it's building a support system, whether it be online, whether it be in person, whether it be in your neighborhood, um, really finding a support system. Like for me with my son, finding the Nate community was really helpful because I had somewhere to sort of talk about it and process it besides obviously therapy. Um, but it was helpful to have people in that same situation. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of moms who've had babies um, during COVID. I have staff who've had uh, babies during COVID and it has been difficult. I was the doula for two uh, clients during COVID. And in the beginning, they weren't letting anyone in. They weren't letting doulas in. They weren't letting partners in. Um, I did get to uh, be with both of um, my clients because they were, I was considered part of the birth team, which was nice, but I know that wasn't the case in many other states. And that wasn't the case in all the hospitals. So we have, we had moms birthing um, with no support system, which I know that in and of itself is, is just would be devastating. One of the most monumental moments of your life. You don't have the one person you want to be there. Um, with you, which I know is causing a lot of, of distress for moms. Yeah. And a lot of trauma. I mean, that's so traumatic. I mean, it's traumatic anyways, but then layering it with that pandemic and then everything that goes along with it, not being able to have those people in the room with you and, and whatnot. But yeah, I love the idea um, of kind of like a contactless support system, if you will. So like putting that cooler, you know, on the on the porch for people or, you know, or even, you know, being able to see someone through a window or through, you know, whatever it is. And I, I just, I think, um, when I, I think about like, if I would have had my daughter during something like this, like how, how different, you know, that would have, would have been for me. Um, and you know, it's true that we don't always have, you know, we don't have the births or deliveries that we want, you know, and so we have this expectation of what we want it to be and what it should look like. And boy, does like a pandemic just kind of throw all of that. I mean, it throws it all out the window that they're, you know, planning for a, a birth now in this kind of situation is just like completely different. And so, yeah. yeah, So I, yeah, I mean, I think it's good. I think it's a really good suggestion that moms have some sort of a different, you know, plan of attack (laughs) for becoming a mom in a pandemic. Cause it is, it is really, it's really different. Well, well, Um, and a lot of the moms that I've spoke with, there's so much grief wrapped around it because they, their partner didn't come get, get to come to the ultrasounds. They didn't get to have their showers or blessing ways or ways to celebrate the baby. There's a lot of grief on missing out on parts of those milestones in a woman's pregnancy and birth 
that they weren't able to. Some of my clients, their parents still haven't met their children. And that has just been very difficult for, you know, travel reasons because they can't travel because you weren't weren't able to travel um, because of, you know, the vaccinations weren't available early on. And once that became, you know, available, people were able to see that. But they there's so much grief about the loss of mom and dad coming to the hospital and holding your baby and the grandparents and all those pictures and all the things that when I look through my birth history that I have that this this big gap in, in baby books and, and, and family rituals and family, you know, uh, bringing uh, new babies home has been really difficult. And then, you know, just feeling isolated of nobody can relate. I can't relate to having a baby in the pandemic. I can empathize. I can empathize with the, with the, with the feeling alone, because my own experience was very different than other people's, but to sit home, one worrying about being a new mom, maybe not having lactation support and things that you might need that you had readily accessible. You know, everything was done during Zoom, but which was great. It kept us connected, but it's not the same thing as, as sitting in the room with the person. And and that's one of the things that I, I miss about therapy right now. I mean, uh, it's been wonderful having virtual therapy, but I miss touching and being in the same space and and the energy that's passed between two people. So they missed out on all of that um, with their, with their birth and, and family and just taking classes. It's been online or it's been pre-recorded, you know, it's still being pre-recorded. And I have clients, I'm just like, wow, I, I wouldn't, I can't imagine not being able to ask a question, you know, because it's, it's, you're, you're listening to it and, and there's less interest in that because it's, it's not too, it's not too directional. You're not giving and getting feedback. You're not in a class with other people who may ask questions that you're too, you know, shy to ask because you don't want to seem like you're the only person that thinks that or has a question about that. So there's really lots of missed opportunities to really get people in a place where they feel, you know, confident in some ways to, to parent and start this journey with some um, like togetherness. I mean, there's birthing circles and all of that, which are great. But like there's been pods of people who have found each other through the different classes that they've taken for. And so their babies are growing up together, which they haven't had that opportunity for. Um, so it's just really finding finding a tribe, finding people who can sit with you in that space. What's, I'm curious to know the feedback that you're getting from your clients um, about telehealth. I mean, do they, does it, I, I, cause I know there's so many pluses and minuses to it. So yeah. I'm just curious to know, um, what the, what the response is from your clients. Like, are they, do they feel like they're still getting the same it's, cause it is so different, but I, mm-hmm. I also would imagine that these parents are so desperate for help from a professional. Uh, do you, have you gotten any feedback from your clients or have they mentioned anything? Yeah, I think, I mean, when I saw clients in person, I mean, uh, I had a lot of babies and moms in my office, so I think it gave them a break, you know, that I could put the toys and they could play and I would interact and sort of be a co-parent for the hour or hold the baby so they could just not hold the baby. So I miss holding babies. I miss holding babies. But um, I think it's been good overall. The feedback from clients generally is that they like it because one, you don't have to spend an hour or if you're trying to leave work, a half hour to get there, half hour to get back. So therapy becomes a two hour experience. Um, And so I think for the most part, people have liked it because it's because we are more accessible um, and that uh, people find it to be like 
easier for them. So that's, that's been a, a huge plus. And I do EMDR and I've been doing it over the screen, which uh, has been really awesome because uh, at first I was like, I'm not sure about this, but it's, it's worked just as beautifully as it does in office. So I can do EMDR with moms with trauma. Um, the one part a lot of people don't like is they don't want to have like relive their trauma in their homes. So that's been something that people like, I'm, I'll wait until you go back in office to do the EMDR around that because I, I don't, I don't want to do it here or they find my office to be the place they can leave all of that. It's safe and not that their homes aren't safe, but just a safe place that they don't have, they can re- relive it in my office and then leave it. Right. Right. For those of those who don't know what EMDR, can you tell, tell us what EMDR yeah. is? Sure. <laughs> EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So it's a type of therapy where you take a traumatic event or a disturbing event and you reprocess it. So you identify negative cognition that goes along with it. So like for moms who didn't have, a, I'll just use myself as I didn't have a vaginal birth. My negative cognition was my body's broken. Then you identify a positive a cognition of you know, I delivered my baby safely because if he had come out, he would have probably had worse brain bleeds. And then you identify where you feel it in your body. So you scan your body and really identify all the places that you feel tension. So it might be my C-section scar. It might be my shoulders. It might be my jaw because I didn't feel heard. Um, And then you identify the uh, emotions that go with it. And so you just, you tap back and forth you process the event, whatever comes up and it's amazing what comes up or, or the connections that are made of, Oh, I have felt, you know, out of control is when I get a lot. I have felt out of control. I didn't have control over my body. And then they identify many other instances where that has been the case. Right. Um, and especially for women, I mean, there's the, the me too movement. There's a lot of women who have sexual trauma that all shows up in birth. So we get to process through all of those. And the goal is to decrease the disturbance and, attach the positive cognition and, and view that experience from a person centered of, of self rather than what all the society and all the other things tell us and, um, to, to decrease the disturbance. So it's very effective. I use it a lot with mom who've had moms who've had traumatic births. And I had a mom who it took us like five to seven sessions to work through it. And she did not want to have another baby. Now she's trying to have another baby. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So it's very effective for trauma, especially moms who've had traumatic births and are terrified to have another baby. Um, You know, I've had moms who've had C-sections who could feel everything. And those are the ones that I'm doing a lot of EMDR with um, and because they want to expand their families and they feel grief around that decision being taken away from them because they're now terrified to to have another child. So it's very effective. I call it the quick and dirty of therapy because sometimes when we do it, stuff comes up that we would never have talked about. You and I could talk for a whole year and your brain's just, it's stored somewhere in the back of your brain. And, you know, EMDR opens up those, those, you know, connections, and then we can work through all of that. So it's very effective. I've seen it change so many women's lives um, and men. I mean, I, I work with men too, but my primary, you know, focus is, is mom, moms and babies. So yes, it's, so I, I would recommend for those who have birth trauma to, to go ahead and find an EMDR therapist, Andrea, it's emdria.com. You can find a therapist in your area 
um, or just Google it EMDR. But I do a lot of work for moms with with EMDR and and, and especially trauma. So yeah. it's yeah. so neat to hear that it's working via telehealth. I think that. Yes. I don't know that I would have thought that it would have, but, and, and yes. I totally understand the fact of kind of reliving that trauma in another space. Cause where you are when trauma happens is such a big part of, you know, having that reoccur. I, I remember, um, moms, the biggest barrier of moms going to a support group at the hospital was that it was at the hospital where all the trauma happens. And yes. You want to go to the support group because of yes. where it was. Yes. Um, and that's just the effect of trauma. It's such, such a powerful thing when something like that happens, but it's so cool that it's, um, that it's working over telehealth. I think that's, yes. And, we'll and I was, I was a skeptic too. because usually do the eye movement or I had tappers in office, but the one thing that I've seen, which I, I'm going to actually continue to have people tap themselves when uh, we go back to office, because like I'm in control of the tappers or the how fast I go. But when people want to go through fast, they start tapping faster. I would never know to do that. Or when they're in a good space, they start going slower. So it really is them being in tune to their own body and, and what what's coming out and what's being processed. I had a trouble going into the hospital after I had my son. Every time I walked in there, I just, I literally almost froze. I couldn't go. So that's very much connected for folks. And for me, after I had my miscarriage, the ultrasound tech became the trigger of, I didn't want that person touching me ever again. So those are all reminders and things we can work on through EMDR. If you want another baby, you don't want to be standing in that, in that, you know, uh, with the tech and they don't know, you know, they don't know that they're part of that trauma for you. Um, and being able to work through that. And it's not, it's not erasing the memory. People think it's hypnosis. It's not what we're doing. We're not erasing the memories. You can still think about it. It changes like all the reactive, the tearful, the crying, the whatever, because you have literally just purged it and worked through it um, so that your body can find peace. So powerful. So um, my, and I typically don't ask so many questions, but I, that's okay. <laughs> I just want to pick your brain today. Um, so now I'm curious to know, I'm sure that, or maybe you haven't, but so I'll ask, have you had moms that, um, you know, or maybe on the, the cusp of when the pandemic was about or when it was just happening and it was fairly new, what that transition was like. Cause I know, you know, you know, having to cancel appointments and saying up, oh, I can't see you in person now. Yes. When the pandemic first hit, I mean, half of my schedule canceled. They're like, no, we don't want to do virtual. And we all thought it was two weeks. Right. I remember that Thursday, my kids got sent home with a backpack full of stuff and they're like, Oh, we just have to stay home for two weeks. And all of us parents are like, oh my gosh, you know, uh, what are we supposed to do with our children? And we still have to work, right? Like, um, so a lot of people just, they were really apprehensive about doing teletherapy um, because it wasn't that same in person. They didn't want to do it at home. They thought it was weird. Um, and so a lot of people uh, didn't want to be seen. And I think people, I don't think it wasn't so much they didn't want to be seen. I think people just and myself included, which was really hard to go through the pandemic being a therapist because I was also freaking out. I was worried that we were going to die or I was going to die or my kids were going to die or somebody in my family is going to die. And it was hard to hold space for all of that during the pandemic, but I did. I have my own resources. I have a, a group of clinicians we meet, we process, you know, things that we need. So I had support in that, in that way. And I always have colleagues who I can, you know, dish with, um, 
And so I think that was hard as everyone was sort of scrambling, trying to figure out, I mean, we couldn't find, we couldn't find basic needs of like toilet paper. So to think about just going to therapy was just another huge, like just emotionally exhausting thing to have to do. Um, And so I, uh, we saw our, our, our senses dip. Um, It went down. Let me, I would say half of my folks. I did teletherapy before the pandemic, so I would offer it to people who were sick so they wouldn't be charged their late fee or to moms who had babies. Um, I would off- I offered it to them. So I had some folks that were doing it, but insurance companies that cover it, which was the issue. So now they're all on board. They're all still covering it. And in Virginia, we have parity law, so they have to to cover it. So that's been great for us. Then we just got slammed. It was a a few months later, like we had a waiting list, people, everyone was trying to get in everywhere. Um, And I was seeing 30 people at one point and running a business. So it was a lot, but I couldn't say no. I can never say no to mom and babies. I just can't. Been the person desperate to have relief from that. So, you know, the pandemic has been um, an eye opener of what we are capable of doing as therapists, you know, we didn't get a break. People are like, what are you doing during the pandemic? I'm like working harder than we ever have, you know, the, the work that we do and, and the importance of being part of the medical team and providing whole circle care for, for moms and babies, you know, not just babies at the pediatrician's office, but mom's whole, whole care. I think now people are, are tired and they're ready to get back to life. Yeah, I agree 100%. Well, Linda, thank you. Thank you so much um, for joining me today. It was so great to see you. And thank you for all the work that you do. I'm so happy that you guys are doing this and and having uh, us come on and and talk about the needs from, you know, moms, babies and families. Um, And I think this is important work that you're doing, too. So thank you. 